Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on this month's deep dive episode on the EM Clerkship Podcast. This month's episode is going to cover priapism. Before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors at Pearson Rabbits, my own personal disability insurance broker. Pearson Rabbits specializes in helping physicians obtain own occupation disability insurance. In addition to this, they also offer assistance in obtaining life insurance as well. They are a group of insurance brokers, not insurance agents. The difference between the two is key. Insurance agents work directly with their insurance company and are financially incentivized to sell specific insurance policies from the insurance company that they work for. Whereas insurance brokers, like Pearson Rabbits, help customers shop policies from multiple insurance companies. In general, insurance agents work for and represent the insurance company, while insurance brokers work for and represent the consumers, meaning me and you. Stephanie Pearson and her team helped me obtain quotes from numerous insurance companies and broke down the pros and cons of each policy in plain English for me, allowing me to pick the policy that worked best for me. They understand the nuances of the healthcare profession and will help you secure true own occupation disability insurance. Don't wait until it's too late. Schedule a consultation appointment today at www.pearsonravits.com. When you request a consultation on their website, be sure to select EM Clerkship on the How Did You Find Us drop-down box. Now, back to our episode. So earlier this month, we had a case on low-flow priapism, also known as ischemic priapism, with a bit of a twist at the end. We're going to start this episode with a clinically relevant anatomy refresher of the penis, only because this is quite relevant when treating priapism. We will then discuss the differences between high-flow and low-flow priapism and the precipitating factors that lead to each of these diagnoses. And then finally, we will discuss diagnosis and treatment of both high-flow and low-flow priapism. If you recall from medical school, the anatomic terms used to describe the penis are kind of confusing because they describe the penis when erect, not when flaccid. So the ventral side is the side closest to the testicles, and the dorsal side is the side closest to the umbilicus. Many people also describe the cross-sectional anatomy of the penis kind of like a clock. So 12 o'clock is the middle of the dorsal side of the penis, and 6 o'clock is the middle of the ventral side of the penis. Internally, the penis has a few important structures that you need to know about. There is a neurovascular bundle located on the dorsal side of the penis at approximately 12 o'clock, consisting of two dorsal nerves, two dorsal arteries, and one large dorsal vein. The clinical importance of this is that you don't want to stick a needle in here and cause an injury to this neurovascular bundle. And this is why we aim our needle at the 2 o'clock and 10 o'clock positions when performing a dorsal penile nerve block. Deep to this neurovascular bundle lies the corpus cavernosa, which are two parallel tubes of erectile tissue that surround two small arteries. This erectile tissue fills with arterial blood during an erection, and this is where you are draining the blood when you are treating priapism. The reason I bring these up is because these two tubes communicate with each other, 
which is clinically important to know because when you are draining priapism, you usually only need to insert the needle to one side in order to successfully drain both cavernosa because of the communication between the two. And finally, last but not least, you have your urethra, which is located ventrally approximately at the 6 o'clock position. Obviously, this is important to know, you do not want to cause an iatrogenic urethral injury. Now with the anatomy out of the way, let's talk about priapism itself. Priapism is defined as an erection lasting more than 4 hours in the absence of sexual stimulation. There are two types, as we mentioned before, low-flow priapism and high-flow priapism. Distinguishing them clinically is extremely important, as low-flow priapism is a urologic emergency, whereas high-flow priapism is not. Low-flow priapism, also known as ischemic priapism, is caused by obstruction of venous outflow from the penis. Basically, blood gets stuck in the corpus cavernosa. Over time, this leads to ischemia and tissue damage, resulting in fibrosis and ultimately erectile dysfunction. Remember, time is penis. Damage starts to occur at the 4-hour mark and increases with time. Once the 24-hour mark is reached of priapism, 90% of patients will have severe permanent erectile dysfunction. There are a large variety of causes of ischemic low-flow priapism. Most commonly, it is idiopathic in etiology, but it is a known adverse effect of many different medications. Erectile dysfunction medications, such as sildenafil and tadalafil, are common causes, as are antipsychotics. I remember in medical school, they taught us to call trazodone trazabone, so we could remember this weird side effect. Drugs, such as cocaine and amphetamines, are also common culprits. And finally, patients with sickle cell disease are at very high risk for priapism due to obvious reasons. Interestingly enough, about 95% of all cases of priapism are low-flow ischemic priapism. High-flow priapism is much rarer. High-flow priapism is not caused by obstruction. Instead, it is caused by extravasation of blood into the corpus cavernosum from an arterial injury or arterial fistula. It does not result in ischemia and therefore is not considered a urologic emergency. High-flow priapism is almost always caused by direct trauma. So think straddle injuries while riding a bike or skateboarding. Diagnosis of high-flow versus low-flow priapism is often made based on clinical history and just think, in the absence of trauma, it is almost certainly low-flow priapism. But you can confirm your diagnosis with a cavernosal blood gas analysis. Meaning, when you are performing the priapism drainage procedure, you send some of the blood that you drain for blood gas analysis. The blood gas for a low-flow priapism will appear ischemic. That is, a low pH with a low PO2 and a high PCO2. The blood gas for a high-flow priapism will appear arterial, as it should, a normal pH with a high PO2 and a low PCO2. This will confirm your diagnosis. Management of these two conditions differs as well. High-flow priapism, once confirmed, can be managed conservatively with outpatient follow-up, as most cases will resolve completely spontaneously in the interim. 
However, if symptoms persist longer than a few days, IR can perform an embolization procedure, but this is rarely needed. Low flow priapism, as I said before, is a time-sensitive diagnosis that requires immediate ED management to prevent the downstream complication of erectile dysfunction. The management can be summarized as analgesia, followed by aspiration, followed by injection, and followed by surgery. Let's break that down. First was analgesia. You are going to want to perform a dorsal penile nerve block here so the patient does not feel the rest of the procedure. Remember, the neurovascular bundle is at 12 o'clock and the urethra is at 6 o'clock, so you are going to inject the local anesthetic at 2 and 10 o'clock to block both dorsal penile nerves. After analgesia comes aspiration. You're going to grab a butterfly needle with the tubing attached and attach the tubing to a 30cc syringe or 50cc syringe, whatever you want to do. Insert the needle at either the 2 o'clock or the 10 o'clock position while aspirating negative pressure until you get return of blood. It should look dark and venous if you are dealing with ischemic priapism. Send off some of the blood for blood gas analysis. If draining does not work immediately, and most of the time it won't, you can try irrigating with saline as well. And what I mean by that is injecting 10 to 20 cc's of sterile saline into the cavernosa and then removing 10 to 20 cc's of blood slash saline mixture. Uh, and this will sometimes help break up the blood clots. Another tip that I've gotten from urology in the past is to make sure to milk the blood out of the penis, like physically with your extra hand as you're aspirating, also to help break up some of the clots. After aspiration is injection. You want to inject phenylephrine into the cavernosa, usually about 100 micrograms every 5 or 6 minutes, with a maximum dose of 1,000 micrograms over the next hour of treatment. You can continue to irrigate and aspirate blood between phenylephrine injections. However, it is so important to make sure your patient is on the cardiac monitor while giving this medication, as we know from the case. Not only is this a way that they'll trick you on oral boards, but this is just good practice in real life. Whenever you're giving a vasoactive medication, put the patient on telemetry monitoring. You can sometimes see reflex bradycardia with this medication. You can also see tachydysrhythmias, but these are rare side effects. So you need to continue treatment with aspiration and injection until the penis becomes flaccid and you begin to get bright red blood back on aspiration. If you don't achieve this within an hour of continued aspiration and injection, this is what is considered treatment failure. If you reach the point of treatment failure, you have to go to the final step, and the final step is surgery. If your treatment has failed, the patient will likely need to go to the OR with urology. It is usually at this point that I'm calling urology, and in addition, if the patient has sickle cell disease, I'm usually calling urology up front, as sometimes these patients require slightly different management. And that's really all I have for you today. Let's summarize real quick. Remember, the important anatomy. The neurovascular bundle is on the dorsal side at 12 o'clock, and the urethra is on the ventral side at 6 o'clock. We avoid damaging these structures during a dorsal penile block and during aspiration by inserting our needle laterally at the 2 and 10 o'clock positions. Remember that low flow priapism is by far the most common type of priapism and that it requires immediate intervention. 
whereas high flow priapism is usually due to direct trauma, is much more rare, and can be managed conservatively. And finally, to treat low flow priapism, remember, anesthetize, aspirate slash irrigate, inject, and consult urology for treatment failure. I hope you found this episode useful. As always, feel free to send me emails with comments, feedback, or case ideas. Mike at emclerkship.com. Thanks again to our sponsors at Pearson Rabbits, and until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.